Remember, there's two handouts. So you have the thicker one that was from two classes ago. That's the one that has the introduction to chapters 40 to 42, and then has the maps, which we referred to last week. Uh, and then I also have a handout from last week, which we'll come back to today, which is uh, labeled Ezekiel 40 to 42, not introduction done. So introduction done, not introduction. Got it? Okay. So not introduction is our handout for today. Um, I should have said last week, but I'll say it now for you all, is that it will seem a little, it seemed a little pedantic going through all the dimensions and whatnot, but the payoff's going to be worth it. I know that's a pretty bold claim, because it did seem, and we've, we've got more of the more pedantic stuff to go today, it seems, but again, I would say it's going to be worth it. All right? And uh, as we kind of explicate both um, what it tells us of Christ, which is the key. We can do two, we can do two churches. Yeah, two at once, that's fine. Um, okay, so both as what we read has confessed Christ, but also maybe some implications that it has for us in, in our own Christian worship. So welcome, Mike. Welcome, Matt. Matt and Mike and... Yep. Well, it is the advantage of Bible class after church because you're already here. So I don't have to wait for you to get here. All right. So uh, we, I think, left off on verse, we read verse 20 of chapter 41, which had, we talked a little bit about this, the cherubim and the palm trees were carved. And I pointed out to you, I don't know how um, our... Baptist friends in particular, um, broadly speaking, those who are what's called iconoclasts. Have you heard of that word? Iconoclasts or iconoclasm. These are the people that want to get rid of icons. Icons, yeah. And by icons, they mean pictures, statues, anything that depicts something real. Because if it depicts something real, if it depicts something real, it might be something then that you could worship. Right. Um, there were those at the time of the Reformation that thought that by having all the statues and all the pictures of the saints and the angels and all these sorts of things, that's the reason um, why the church had the cult of the saints, where they prayed to saints. They would pray to the saint because, of course, there was a picture of them there. So you would just go to the picture and you would say, I don't know, Saint uh, Alphonsus, you know, thank you for pancakes because he's the patron saint of pancakes. Right. Or can you give me more pancakes? Actually, it's probably what you would pray to St. Alphonsus for, right? I don't know. There's, there's a church in Chicago, St. Alphonsus. They had pancake breakfast. So I figured that was their patron. Oh, was it? So he's probably actually the patron saint of tuberculosis or something, right? Yeah. All right. Um, so iconoclasm. But this is actually an interesting response here. You could do the same thing from Solomon a little less from Solomon, but definitely from the ta- tabernacle, is that the tabernacle had carvings in the walls and, and they had things depicted in the tapestry. So it's like, well, wait a minute. We're not supposed to have idols, and yet God did that we depict things in the sanctuary. And this is the eternal sanctuary. This is a, for Ezekiel, his vision of heaven. And there's carvings of things that could be worshipped in the wall, but of course we're not going to worship them. You see? So the problem isn't so much the carving or the painting, it's what you do with it, as always. This is the same thing with churches, right? You know, you can idolize a sanctuary. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's taken from you. University Lutheran in Minneapolis would be an example of that, where the district sold their property and it was destroyed. They ended up with actually the much nicer sanctuary in the process, because the one built in the 50s, I think, or 60s, had no steel. It was kind of boring. And, and you know, no, they have a nice church. That looks nice anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Tells a story. Yeah. Yeah. Or confesses the truth. I mean, I, it's not true for all of our churches, um, but generally it's only true in America for churches we've inherited. So if you go at uh, Mequon, which isn't terribly ornate by any stretch, it was a, it, but it had been a nunnery before we bought it. And uh, so they had to fix Jesus in the back window. Because it was Mary, so they had to change his face and a little bit of clothing. Anyway, um, 
But if you, if you look at the altar, there are saints bowing. In the, they're, they're, I don't know, I don't know if it's like gold foil or something, I can't, or if it was carved into the wall, I can't remember. But it, on the walls of the chancel, there's, there's angels facing the altar. I'm like, well, that actually is confessing the truth. Yeah, you don't worship the angels, but the angels are being with us in, in church. So why, why can't we picture that? Especially for, uh, for children, I would say, as you, even, if, even if they're becoming literate. Um, and then if you can confirm what you read with pictures, that's also helpful, right? So like Christ at the center is generally true for our churches. So you'll have, oh, like we have a statue of Jesus. Some have stained glass windows, Christ upon the cross and a stained glass window, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But this is your introduction to it right there. Is that there were cherubim, angels, and palm trees. So you're surrounded by palm trees and angels. Which is interesting, right? So you can imagine that. If you can't imagine all the dimensions, that's okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, anybody can read. We'll read. Like I say, we're not going to dig too deep into details. But we'll get to the payoff today, I hope. 21 is where we're going to start. The doorposts of the temple were square, as was the front their appearance was similar. The altar was of wood, three cubits high, two cubits. Its corners, its length, and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. The temple and the sanctuary had two doors, the two panels of peace, two folding panels, two panels for one door, and two panels for the other door. The cherubim and palm trees were carved on the temple, just as they were carved on the walls. A wooden canopy was on the front of the vestibule outside. There were beveled window frames and palm trees on one side and on the other, and on the sides of the vestibule, also on the side chambers of the temple and on the canopy. Okay. So um, we talked about this last time, I think, but the use of squaring, of square, perfect square. I mean, you generally don't do this in architecture. You don't build square. It's usually rectangular. And there's acoustic reasons for that, which I'm sensitive to. Um, that's why it's usually long and narrow, you know. Is that, so the sound carries instead of just, if you put a square, you almost have to put this, the thing that, that you're going to pay attention to in the center so that everybody, but even then you can't face all four directions at once. So then you add, if you're going to do acoustics, you're going to add speakers. So it is interesting that you have square doors, you have faces. You obviously have the four square of the, if you look at your diagram of the exterior. This was figure two, I think. Yep. You know, and it's squares within squares then as well. All right. So that's, uh, that's peculiar. And it, again, there's not enough room for this on the Temple Mount. So this is clearly a picture of heaven and not something that we would expect to be built on earth. Um, why, why four, four equal sides, I guess, is a question. Maybe that is on that. Why four? Four in the Bible is a big number. When we talk about four, what does it usually indicate? The four sides of earth? Yeah, he's square earth theory. Good. Or flat earth. Thank you for being a flat earther. The four cardinal directions, right? North, south, east, west. It's usually, it is usually a number of the world. Right, people come from the east and the west and the north and the south. Right, um, so, so here, suggested, or at least could be, one of the ideas is that this is the earth. This is the new earth. This is the new heavens, new earth. Or it at least includes all nations. Right, comes people come from north, south, east, and west. Although they can't come in on the one on the west wall, <laughs> because, well, anyway, we'll get to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. It is like the west coast. Yeah. Um, no, you come in from the east, and who's seated in the west is the reason why. Um, you might, you might I, I might as well talk about it now since you brought, I brought it up, you brought it up, is that um, generally we, we don't ever turn our back to the altar. Have you noticed that? It's on the one wall. And even, even I, the only time I turn my back to the altar is when I'm taking something from the altar and giving it to you. Proclaiming a word or a blessing or distributing a sacrament or yeah but yeah you don't turn your back on Jesus it's just kind of an interesting idea even the way that you even the way that that the the old you know rubrics the red the stuff in the red in the in the hymnal tell you know 
would have the pastor turn certain ways, never actually, until the sacrament's consumed and the service is, is complete, as before you finally turn your back to the altar. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, because you enter in, you do everything at the altar, and then you enter out, and that's when you, yeah. Right, well, and you have to at some point, right? <laughs> don't, don't take it too far. Um, but if, if, if you notice here, the Holy of Holies, you can't ever turn your back to it uh, unless you're leaving. But you're never going to leave this temple. So you're always going to be faced up on Jesus. All right. Well, interesting idea, right? Okay, uh, let's see. More, or more cherubim, more palm trees. you got nice um, you know, wood casing on the windows. Matt appreciates that, you know. No, not cheap, right? No, no uh, vinyl windows here. No, nope. nice heavy wood windows. No drywall returns. No, no drywall returns. Yeah, exactly. Wooden canopy over the vestibule as you go in, so you even have a little bit of a canopy for shelter, right? All right. Anything else catch your attention there? Oh, we didn't talk about the altar, did we? Notice what the altar is made out of. Critical. It's made out of wood. Now, ours is made out of wood. But if it was um, an Old Testament altar, could it be made out of wood? They were stone. Why were they stone? Well, yeah, what did you put on the animal? Burnt sacrifice. Yeah, you're not burning a sacrifice in an altar made out of wood. Yeah. Um, our churches aren't consistent on this. So we have wooden altars. Um, but we also have stone altars, right? And you could go either way. You know, the stone is kind of connected to probably more to like Jesus being laid to rest in the tomb, right? Which is fine, because that's official, you know, death for us. Um, but a wooden altar connects you to the cross and the manger probably, a little bit stronger, which I, I like that, you know. Um, stone altars are probably more common in, in uh, Roman Catholic churches than they are for us. We're probably more wood. Which cheaper, too, generally. <laughs> then pour a big, nice big piece of, uh, say, marble from uh, Italy for your altar. My uh, vicarage congregation had, uh, they had a church fire in 63, I think. The whole church burned down. The original A-frame, built in 1840. Um, and somebody had the wherewithal to get out their Super 8 and take video, and take the film of it. And they still had the film, so I had it transferred to video, and we showed it for their church anniversary which was kind of tragic but uh, to watch the church burning down for your anniversary but when they when they built the new church they were able to get a stone altar it had been rejected for use in a roman church who had ordered it and they didn't like it or something it was the wrong size or something and so then they got it on the cheap as lutherans do right get the throwaways from the roman church so they had a beautiful stone altar that's used for roman church you'll know there's some specific features, but the big one is there's an alcove in the center of the altar on the top, and that's where you put the relic patron saint is. So we're St. John, so maybe it's St. John's, you know, nose hairs, right? It's in a little box in the, you know. Well, you got to save the, some, you know, maybe you got the fingernail of John. All right. And then, of course, the question will always be, which John is it? Which I have not gotten an answer yet for. Somebody's going to figure this out someday. They're going to go back and... What? Well, yeah, but as Luther said, you know, if you're going to take all the pieces of the true cross, because that's a lot of people said they have pieces of the true cross, you put them all together, you'd have crosses to fill the world. Yeah, or something like that. All right, that's good on that. <laughs> 42. Remember, he's being led around, isn't he? Who's leading him around? Somebody has their... I don't want to scroll because it'll make you vomit us. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's leading them? You have to, you have to look back in your Bible. What's that? The angel of the Lord. Yeah, the angel of the Lord. That's right. Okay, now you can read. Sorry. Their door space north. 
Now the upper chambers were shorter because the galleries took away space from them, more than from the lower and middle stories of the building. When they were in three stories, they did not have pillars like the pillars of the courts. Therefore, the upper level was shortened more than the lower and middle levels from the ground up. All right, I'll scroll a little bit for you. And the wall which was outside ran parallel to the chambers at the front of the chambers where its length was 15 cubits. The length, length of the chambers toward the upper part was 50 cubits, whereas that facing the temple was 100 cubits. And the lower chambers was the entrance of the east side as one goes into the from the outer all right, I know it. they're having a fun time trying to describe all this, aren't they? But if you look at your charts, uh, let's see, we are, where are these, where are these things that these, these, uh, what you call them? Galleries? No, those are the side rooms. The temple, there's the altar. It's, the altar table is L, but then we went back out again, confusing, out to the, back out to the compound. Okay, so we're, we're somewhere, I'm going to guess, we're somewhere in that room Q, Q to the north, and then we're going to find out the same things on the, on the south. You see Q, the letter Q? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about these galleries. It's not really trying to depict them there. But three stories high. Why would you need galleries? What are galleries for? For watching and listening, right? Or, yeah. Remember, this is the inner temple and, this is, and the altar. Was the altar visible to anybody but the priests making the sacrifices in the Old Testament? No. So that's a big change. Now we have the, the structure built for people actually to observe and to see and to hear. And uh, it'll be all people, right? So you're already seeing with Ezekiel, he's seeing something that I think he's probably even, he's not able to understand. Like, wait a minute, a temple, but with galleries three stories high for people to observe? Like, that's not how, that's only for the priests. And then they bring out the forgiveness from the sacrifice, but the, only they offer the sacrifice. So there's a change here. All right. And uh, one of the things we could talk about is the way that I think this is the right way to do it. It's on our, my next handout. Is that the um, you have the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle, then you have the temple, right? And there's a transition, largely harmonious. Just one's a tent, and the other one's a building. And the building is greatly expanded. It has more rooms and things, but largely the proportions and what you do in it are the same. It's just made out of stone instead of out of a, a tent. It doesn't move anymore. Uh, then you go to Ezekiel's temple, and there's a big transformation that happens. You get to Revelation, which we read a couple of times already, Revelation 21, 22. There's a total transformation of the temple. Like all the rooms and the anterooms and the galleries and everything. Um, they, it's like, and there's no even, not any, any walls anymore either. And the temple now is actually very simple. It's an altar with a lamb. And the saints and angels are gathered around it. And they are the temple. And this is probably the right way to think about what we're seeing in Ezekiel. These proportions and these dimensions, like I said, with four describing the world, that this all gets subsumed into Jesus and then all those who are joined into Jesus. So it goes from being stones to being people. Now, of course, this is compatible with the New Testament. I've quoted it before for you um, in sermons. You know, quote St. Peter about we are living stones being built up into our head, Christ Jesus, right? Jesus is the cornerstone, that language, right? So the church is just, the church people joined to Jesus in baptism are described as a building. So you can see, I think the New Testament authors already make the move. They already see, they take what Jesus said about the temple being his body and saying, okay, that's how we're to understand all of those sacred dimensions, all of the iconography, you know, all the pictures, is as being describing describing the way the church is going to be gathered from all four corners of the earth, all to worship the Lamb on His throne. Follow. All right. So I kind of gave you the payoff ahead of time, but that's all right. That's the payoff. But now you're not like okay. Uh, let's see. Anything else in here that we should talk about? The galleries we talked about. You can kind of imagine this. We need a we need a. Matt's looking for a picture of an elevation, right, so that we can see the 
three stories and how the lower galleries are a little sh shorter or something. I don't know. You kind of lose track of all the numbers at some point, don't you? And kind of the picture of it. All right, let's just uh, keep going then. Verse 10. Also there were chambers in the thickness of the wall of the court toward the east, opposite the separating courtyard and opposite the building. There was a walk in front of them also, and their appearance was like the chief toward the north. They were as long and as wide as the others, and all their exits and entrances were according to plan. And corresponding to the doors of the chambers that were facing south, as one enters them, there was a door in front of the walk and the way directly in front of the wall toward the east. Then he said to me, The north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite courtyard, are the holy chambers mm -hmm. where the priests who approach the Lord shall eat the most holy offerings. There they shall lay the most holy offerings, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. For the place is holy. Alright, scrolling. The priests enter them, they shall not go out of the holy chamber into the outer court. But there they shall leave their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments. Then they may approach that which is for the people. Okay, so those on your on are where's the priests' rooms? The the sacristies. That's Q. It's still describing Q, right? Oh, it's too bad I don't have a figure of what Q looks like on the inside. But it doesn't really doesn't really have that. Right? But this is you know, these are things that Christian churches have. have a place for the right? But also where the they receive the sacrifice. Um, and so you have this idea of the sacrifice. They go in and they go out with the sacrifice. Now this is all just as with the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon. Um, and I think we've talked about this before with Ezekiel. I mean, he's only describing things that, that he knew through training, but never really got to experience because he never served. He maybe observed uh, for a time before the exile. I'm not sure he ever did. All right, so... Um, sense of what Ezekiel is being given to see in the way he communicates it that he's longing to be a priest to do the to do the job right he's describing all the things and like oh someday we'll get to do this again right kind of like uh, I've given you the analogy of um, uh, you know the the folks out in rural Siberia waiting for for the Soviet Union to fall so that they can call a pastor again and and, ha and gather together as Christians and worship, you know, publicly, um, and and do that without without risk of death. All right, um, and it seems like Ezekiel has that same kind of longing. He's he's describing these things with great reverence, um, but also um, the things that I think he hopes to receive at some some day. And the Lord's giving him this vision too. All right, so you note there you have. Um, the priests eating the offerings and, and offering, offering trespass offering and also vesting, all right, as they go in and out. Uh, that's probably a change from the temple of old, too. There were different, there was usually a high priest, right, and then other priests below him. And the high priest was the only one that offered the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. The priest was that year. But um, um, the other priests would offer all the other sacrifices out in the courtyard. So we have a consistency here, except it does sound like there. I mean, we haven't had a high priest yet. That's I think that's the change, and there's a reason for that, of course, because ultimately, who's the high priest? Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. All right. So there's been no distinction of a high priest. That that's actually I don't have that on a note anywhere. There you go. The Spirit spoke to me. Okay, and we're almost to the payoff. One more chunk of 42. Verse 15. Now when he had finished measuring the inner temple, he brought me out through the gateway that faces toward the east and measured it all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod, 500 rods by the measuring rod all around. He measured the north side, 500 rods by the measuring rod. 
he measured the south side 500 rounds by the measuring rod. He came around to the west side and measured 500 rounds by the measuring rod. He measured it on four sides. It had a wall all around, 500 cubits long and 500 wide to separate the holy areas from the common. All right. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should, because that's where we started. Yeah, it's square. We've talked about that. But um, this, is, this is a common figure in Hebrew writing, especially in poetry, is that um, you'll start somewhere, and we started with a wall, right, from the outside, and then we went in, and we eventually got to the altar, right? And now we've worked our way back out, and we're back out to the wall, right? And this is called, um, uh, in Greek, it's called a chiasm. It's like can look like an X, right? And so we worked our way out. We had the same dimensions listed here at the beginning, the 500, and that, and we get it again at the end, right? And the four sides, and the mirror. And so when we were, just a few verses ago, I didn't point this out to you, but we measured the vestibule, or the vestry to the, to the north, and then we read the same thing again, but it was about it to the south. Right, so you almost have to do it this way if to get the impression that that the building is perfectly symmetrical. You see, so we work towards the altar, which is at the center, but then you work your way back out. Both times he's going in and out through the east, but one time he's faced up towards the north, and then he exits back out, faced up through the west, and then describes the whole thing in reverse. Does that make sense? Right for the last two weeks, <laughs> it's just it's just getting a tour of the uh, and every with all the description and everything, right? But you're like, okay, that's nice, thanks. Right? It's pretty. Mm -hmm. um, the wall is the key there. And I, I, that's why it starts and ends with the wall. Well, the, the wall and the altar. All right, so the altar is the center point. But we didn't have the altar used for anything, did we? It was just described. It was a wooden thing. It was twice as long as it was, right? Four by two, maybe, I think it's, it said. Right? And it's at the center. And there's all this, it's all built up for something. But there were no people. There was no one observing. There was no one sacrificing. Not actively. It was just described. It was for this and for that and for this and for that. Right? But the wall is the key um, at the beginning and the end then, which is, what was it for? It told us. The wall is for... To you, you don't probably see it over there. To separate the holy areas from the common. Yeah, yeah. Right, so we've had, or the profane, that's even better translation. Why would we say common? Because profane sounds offensive, right? Right, but this has been a theme through the whole book, hasn't it? Is that God takes what's profane and makes it holy. We had that with the two women, right, the two sisters. And then, of course, they defile what, they, what God made holy, right? And then there's this, but there's always this hint of a restoration when all things will be made holy again, right? Sins forgiven um, eternally kind of hopefulness and that ultimately when we talk about this temple in Revelation is that all the nations are gathered finally and this is this is what they're gathered into all right any questions so far let's look at the hand thing um, this is the one that says 40 to 42 not introduction look on page two because I have a little bit more on the holiness actually uh, and the and the uh, cherubim and palms, right? So let me, I'm just going to read it for you because I wrote this a week ago, so now I'm not sure I remember even what I wrote down. <laughs> All right. Um, this section follows the theology then and Solomonic Temple. Most relevant texts are, and we're going to talk about this again today, Exodus 26, Exodus 36, and then 1 Kings 6 and 7. So... Exodus has to do with the uh, tabernacle, that's not from Mount Sinai, and then 1 Kings has to do with the temple. Ezekiel's variations and omissions, so what does he talk about, what doesn't he talk about, intensify the structure's purpose and correct the abuses that had crept in under the apostate and syncretistic kings and priests. I wrote syncretistic down so somebody would ask, what does that mean, Pastor? What does that mean, Pastor? Yeah, so, <laughs> thank you. So, syncretistic means... Um, worship of the true God blended with worship of pagan or in a pagan fashion or pagan ideas, right? This is very common, unfortunately, in our Roman, in the Roman church. So if you're, what's that? 
Yeah, with like Pachimama. Heard of Pachimama? That's a South American one. Um, and, and to some degree, especially with the cults of Mary, like Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, I'm trying to think of some of the others, where they take the native religion and they're like, well, you were worshiping this mother goddess. It's actually just the Virgin Mary. And they're like, that, that's a stretch, right? Right. But that's syncretism, right? Maybe not. Maybe you didn't know that. Now you do. Uh, this was true. This is always true. And there's always a danger of this, right? Is that, you know, you take St. Nicholas and you turn him into Santa Claus. And it's like, well, that's not really who St. Nicholas was, or that's not what he cared about. It's like, it's one thing to remember St. Nicholas, which I think we can, was, and do that in a, in a way that's helpful for us and to, encouraging for us even to maybe emulate his behavior, but um, to turn him into basically a judge is <laughs> a horrible distortion of the original. Anyway. What's that? Yeah, you turn him into. Yep. You look for gifts from Saint Nicholas instead of, or Saint Saint Nicholas, uh, Santa Claus instead of from God, who gives all gifts. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Uh, let's see where were we. The decorative features we talked about this already. The cherubim and palms suggest a paradise restored ambience. You like that? It's paradise restored. Yeah. Because it was God's earthly house and dwelling place, it was the focal point of his redemptive activity until that goal was realized in Christ and then in the eschaton. That's Revelation 21. Eschaton is just the fancy word for end, day, end time or for eternity. It is the heart of the gospel that in Christ the goal was reached when the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. John 1:14, Christmas Day. And by his life, death, and resurrection opened the gates of paradise. Matthew 28. All right, so... Um, you cannot read Ezekiel without the New Testament and read it for faith. It, it's, it's a veiled book. And I think we've seen that. Like, if, like how many times do we have to say, but Jesus, right? Yeah. So Jesus is the answer to, to, the, to the terror and the, the fear and foreboding of the book. But it's also the answer to why all these dimensions? Why all this like precision? Why the perfect square? All of that kind of thing. All right? Um, oh yeah, because God in the Old Testament dwelt in the Holy of Holies, that is the focal point of the temple in Ezekiel too, right? It was the most holy place because of his presence, who alone is holiness itself. I think I wrote that again on the next handout. All sacrifices who sat on the throne above the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So remember, the lid of the Ark was called the mercy seat, and the pillar of cloud or fire indicated God's presence there. Also called the glory cloud, which will come back today. Maybe. See so how far we get. He promises to forgive the sins of the worshipers through these Old Testament, quote-unquote, sacraments, which are types uh, and also participants or partakers of the final sacrifice of Calvary. All right? So, by the way, this is a very important corrective for you. That's why I wrote it down. That it is wrong to think of the Old Testament um, temple and tabernacle before it as something less than Christian worship. So it's the worship that God appointed to point for. The worship that we have points to Christ who came, right? And brings Christ to us here in the now. In both cases, it's forgiveness for, for the forgiveness of sins. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody understood that or actually even believed that. Certainly not by the time of Jesus. They had lost sight of the idea that this is Jesus for... This is the promise of God coming forth to forgive sins in the sacrifice. Because then they would see Christ crucified and, and he himself teaching that this is going to, for the forgiveness of sins. And, oh, waiting for. That's what all those things pointed forward to. Right. And by pointing forward to, we don't just mean our, like, they're, they're kind of fake and they don't really do anything, but they're teaching you. That's the wrong way to understand the Old Testament sacrifices. They're not fake and just pointing forward to something in a sense of just a figure. Or actually, give you, they gave them the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. So that the writer of the Hebrews can say, by faith Abraham was saved. By faith Jacob was saved. Faith in what? In Jesus, who is to come. Right? Who they received, like for example, Abraham and Isaac through the sacrifice of the ram there on Mount Moriah. Who took, took the place of Isaac so that Isaac didn't die. Right? As an example. Tabernacle and temple. So, it's not like there's two churches. I guess this is important. This is a very important thing to say. Or that there's two different faiths. 
right? There was the faith of the Old Testament, one covenant. Now there's the faith of the New Testament, new covenant. We believed in different things. Jesus says, that's okay. I'm here now. And you were just really worshiping me or something. Um, Luther does this really well in his Genesis lectures. I've quoted for you on the daily videos, but, um, you know, Luther will say that Seth, who was the patriarch after, after Noah, right? Or after Adam, all right? Seth was the son of Adam. Yeah, because Abel was dead, right? Okay, good. Um, that Seth taught Abram, Isaac, and Jacob of, of Christ, who was, who was to come, and told them of the sacrifice and how God um, sacred creation to, to clothe them with the forgiveness of sins. <laughs> like, what? I don't remember Seth teaching any of those things, right? We don't have Seth's sermons, right? Um, but I don't think it's wrong for Luther to speculate that way. Because um, what else was he going to speak of? Somebody other than Jesus forgiving sins? Then he would believe in some other God, right? Hmm. Maybe he didn't have his name is the point, right? Yeah. All right, so that's a very important note, right? He promises to forgive the sins of the worshipers. The reason why the sins of the Old Testament worshipers were forgiven and tabernacled, attached his word of promise to do that. The same word that was made flesh and dwells among us. All right. The holiness radiated, if you're going to look at figure two, outward from the Holy of Holies, so that right in the middle of L, L there, I think, is the Holy of Holies, isn't it? No, M. M is. Excuse me. Nave is the narthex. Oh, my. It's a pretty big complex. Yeah. Radiated out, outward from the Holy of Holies through the nave into the courtyard and then to Jerusalem and then ultimately to the ends of the earth for us with Pentecost. All right. We're going to... Stand out too, but I'll say it here. The New Testament does not prescribe church architecture. I think we talked about that last time. But there's no prescription about the kind of buildings that we worship in. We don't even have to worship in a building. We can worship outside. Right? What does it prescribe? Preached body and blood administered under bread and wine. Right? For the forgiveness of sins. That's what it mandates. But, I mean, you obviously need a table of some sort for that because it's a meal. <laughs> But apart from that, like, what else do you need? Um, that doesn't mean you can't do other things, right? That's, that's all. We're not minimalists. Like, we're only going to do bare minimum. So we're going we're gonna to worship like we're in the garden. Meaning, just a table, just a salad and blood for us, a Bible, and then nothing else is necessary. Not even clothing, right? Because it's the garden. Hmm. Don't go too far. We don't need to be that minimal. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be weird. Um, all other aspects of biblical worship are to express that sense of sacred space and sacred time. I have somebody at the seminary that wants me to write on this again. I was starting to work on it, and then I got busy being a pastor, and I did never. Like, oh, you could restart your degree. You could finish it. And this is, we'd love for you to write on this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sacred space, sacred time. Right. Um, the purpose of the wall... There it is. It is almost a verbatim quote from Yahweh's definitive pronouncement about the purpose of the office of the priest in Leviticus 10.10. So this was the job of the holy from the profane. Right? The same language then it was used in Ezekiel 22 when, where Yahweh declared that Israel's unfaithful priests had failed in their liturgical and teaching ministry. They were, quote, profaning what is holy to me by not distinguishing holy in the common teaching the difference between the unclean and the clean, right? So now this temple the rest, you know, is restoring God's people to what the, where the priests had failed to make those distinctions, right? Um, Matt's been talking about this, about bath. Distinguish between male and female. That's good. <laughs> we don't want to confuse the two. I was just in Minnesota for Gabe's concert, and uh, it's everywhere now. It's like... Bathroom, bathroom for all or something. Water closet. No male or female. Everyone has to have a lock on it, of course, then. <laughs> so nobody walks in on you. Which, I mean, I actually kind of like having personalized personal bathroom. Not having a communal bathroom. I mean, that's kind of nice, right? Just for me. But then there's only four, and there's a whole restaurant full of people. You know, like, well, how's that going to work? Anyway. Especially with the bar, right? People drinking. And you need to have that toilet at the ready. Uh, okay. Right. So therefore, uh, what is com or what is holy? 
male and female is holy, right? To say that there's something other than what, how God made us is actually profane. It's profanity. It's swearing against God, against his word. I don't know if that's helpful. Tell that to your boss. This is profanity. Anyway, <laughs> the, um, where was I? Oh, yes. Um, and the goal of ritual purity and holiness attempted through the deeds of the law and avoidance of what is unclean is, cent- is central to traditional Judaism. Right? So making this distinction, separating holy from unholy, unclean from clean, clean from cl- unclean, that is part of Old Testament worship, um, but we failed, they, they failed to attain it. Right? So it's the fi- that's one of the failures of the law, which I know that sounds terrible for, you to, for me to say, that God's law failed. The apostle tells us that was God's intent. He gave us a law that we couldn't keep on purpose to teach us that we cannot, we cannot do this. We can't make ourselves clean. We keep the profanity from the, from the holy in us, right? This has to be done to us, has to be given to you as a gift. God has to set them clean. In other words, forgive you and put to death the old Adam, right? That's central New Testament teaching. The priesthood didn't do it, or they failed to do it consistently. Instead, the divine purpose in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Again, think of this temple fulfilled in Jesus. Profane is separated from the holy, right? Sheep and goats, wheat and tares. What's the, what's the other separation language in the parables of judgment? Wise and foolish. Yeah. Did I do sheep and goats? I did sheep and goats. That was the first one I did. All right. Anyway. Um, oh, yes, where the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, justification and sanctification come freely to all believers simply through faith in him, not mediated through a priestly office, through Christ himself. All right, this is called the scandal of particularity. Ever heard that before? It's in your back pocket, right? Because when somebody says, how can you believe that some people are saved and other people aren't? This is what it's called. It's a scandal, Right? of particularity, the God who believe in him, in Christ, believe in Christ. And those who don't are cast into eternal judgment. It's like, well, that, that's too specific. <laughs> is that only through faith in Jesus Christ is that we sinners can be and are reconciled to God, the holy God, and gain entrance into the eternal city through its gates. This is John 10. No one comes to the Father but by Christ like well that's too specific that's and that's too particular right there's got to be other ways even even i'm sorry to pick on the roman church so much here but since vatican ii it's been an essential teaching for them is that they're righteous pagans there are pagans who don't confess christ but believe because they were virtuous like aristotle right aristotle he, i mean he taught the truth i mean he was it was as close to jesus close enough <laughs> that's what they said yeah uh, which, of course, is contradicting the scripture, so that's not helpful. To retain her holiness in Christ, the church must vigilantly remain countercultural in many aspects of faith, ethics, and worship practice, and thus keep herself unstained from the world. This is why we don't sing pop songs in church that don't confess Christ. I know, it sounds silly. We're not going to sing your Disney songs in church. You can sing your Disney songs at home. It's fine. But they're not appropriate for, for divine worship, right? Because they don't speak of Jesus. And that means sometimes profane hymns are ones that say true things but don't actually say anything particular. And that's a hard thing to hear. Because a lot of times they have, they have pretty tunes and we like to sing them. But they don't actually, they don't lead to faith in Christ. They just speak of, oh, God, you're so awesome. I'm like, well, that's nice. <laughs> but that doesn't save me. It just means, well, it's actually kind of terrifying that he's so awesome. <laughs> right? Unless it's that he gave his son. Right? This is uh, particularly hard with carols sometimes, famous Christmas carols, because they speak of snow and and uh, and and maids milking and uh, that's yeah that's not actually a carol, um, but the cattle are mowing and like I don't really care what the cows are doing, but the poor baby wakes, but he doesn't make any crying. That's not in the Bible. Oops. Why isn't he crying? I mean, if I were a baby, especially if I was a baby born to die for this here and there over the people. Jesus does weep, by the way. 
What? Well, thank you, Western European. Yeah. All right. So hopefully that's helpful so far. All right, we're gonna we're just gonna read. Yeah, we can do this. We're gonna read the first. Um, I think we should actually read. Let's just read the first five verses because that's all I want to talk about today. And we're not even gonna get through these first five verses. So, all right. But this is the payoff. You ready? You missed this, Matt. We're finally we read three chapters and you're like, I don't care about wall sizes and and wood casement and. Yeah, but the, the payoff is here. All right, all right. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Hmm. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Shabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces toward the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Yay! There's the payoff. All right. Now, if you haven't been with us every week, you might not remember... I'm sorry, they, they didn't print on both sides. So you, you could just have to take the top two and then pass it on and hope keep those two pages together somehow. Good luck. All right, while those are handing out, I'll just talk a little bit about the glory of the Lord. Um, has been, had departed back in chapter 12, or 11, I should say, chapter 11. It went away, we talked about it, it goes away kind of twice chapter 10 and chapter 11, and I suggested to you it's really the same scene just two times. But the glory of the Lord's been gone. Now this, because if, if the pillar of cloud of fire is not in the tabernacle, then who's not there? The Lord's not there. That was the sign of God's presence, right? If the, if the glory cloud appeared when Solomon dedicated the temple, in the went to the temple, right? But if that cloud does not return, for them, returned. All right, so you figured it out, the sheets? Do the, both sheets probably say 43, 1 through 12 at the top, and the distinction is one says one at the bottom, and the other says two. So you should be able to keep them together. All right, good. Thank you for that. Um, so having the glory return, this is the big pick. Now, if we had just been reading it straight through, instead of taking a year <laughs> to read it, You'd be like, oh, finally the glory returned. We've been waiting for this moment. You got what you need? I'll staple them next week. Yeah, however you want to do it, it's fine. All right, so the glory has returned. It's amazing, this is great. And, uh, and notice which gate? Yeah, we talked about this last week with the sunrise. Comes from, where's the sunrise? In the, in the east, right, who's west? With the Feast of Salvation, as we sing? Jesus. And a multitude, right? Comes from the east and the west. All right, so that, if you looked at your chart, I'm sorry, now you have like three sheets to juggle. That's okay. The east gate is the big gate. He came in through the outward, outer east gate. He went in when he got his tour through the inner east gate. And then you have to go through the, through the, under the canopy, which is, I think, K right? The vestibule with the canopy into the narthex L or the nave, the sanctuary with all its galleries around. You see the galleries around the little boxes and then to the holy place M all from the east, all from and back out towards the east. Okay. So east is important. And behold, this is the long version of this. Um, in the previous accounts, chapter two, three, nine or 10 of God was around the glory it wasn't the glory of God of Israel. It was, like, it was like the glory of God or the God of Israel or the glory. But to have the whole thing here, it's the narrative return. The glory of the God of Israel, the full thing from the east. His voice, oh wait a minute, the glory of God is now a first person. This is a 
not neuter, not feminine. Male, yes, thank you. Masculine. <laughs> All right, a person who happens to be male. Hmm. Who is the sound, not happens to be, but anyway, was like the sound of many waters, his voice. Now, we had two. This is all in the handout, by the way. Um, which I remember because I wrote it yesterday when I got home. <laughs> the, uh, the sound of rushing waters. The, the sound of rushing waters was attributed to the, to the flapping of the angel's wings back in chapter 1 at the call of, of Ezekiel. Which, by the way, where was that? Where was the call of Ezekiel? By the river. Kabar, right, this is, this is huge. Because all of a sudden now we're like, okay, now we're going to recap, we're going to connect everything that happened before and see, we've had all these building blocks, but now this is the culmination of all, everything that's been built up. All right, uh, let's see, sound of many, so that was the flapping of the wings sounded like rushing waters. There's a time when the Father speaks from heaven and they thought it thundered. John, at the Garden of Gethsemane, don't know what chapter that is. 12? It's probably chapter 12. It's after the raising of Lazarus. No, it would be after chapter 12 because you have the, it'd be chapter 18. There, there we go. These are the things that I actually struggle to remember this, so I have to force myself to do it. Because then someday I'm going to like, where does it say that God's voice thundered? No, I like, uh, need to work it out. All right. The earth shone with his glory. Huh. Shining with glory. Yeah. You hear transfiguration there, the mountain of glory. Good. This is also revelation, right? Who, and who's the one that shines with glory at the, in the temple of revelation? It's the lamb. Yeah, the heavens are illuminated by the lamb, Jesus. Yeah, he is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome, right? The light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not, over, could not comprehend it, Right? These are all Advent themes and Christmas themes. And Epiphany, right? Which is light bulb season. Ding! There's Jesus. Look. Transfiguration. All right. All right. Um, notice he has a voice. That's also going to... Because he's going to talk. This is not... Yeah, we need to listen. Um, it was... Like the appearance of a vision which I saw. This is one of these rare times that Ezekiel is going to speak in first person. Where he talks about me or I. The rest of the time it's just describing what is, what somebody does, right? But here it's I saw. It was like an appearance which I saw. Like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. When was that? When did he come to destroy the city? Well... Uh, I don't know if I even gave you a note about that. Coming to destroy the city. He didn't come to destroy the city. It was actually the... It was the uh, uh, destroying angel. But he was given to see it. Uh, why didn't I put a note down? I should have put a note down. What verse is that in? Destroying the city. Verse 3. All right, three, four, two, three. two previous accountings, chapter one, chapter eight through eleven. It's in chapter eight through eleven. Remember, he prophetically speaks of the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. It doesn't actually end up happening until chapter twenty, I think it was. You remember all this? All right, this is good. This is also helpful if you're writing a long book, a long spoken Bible, right? That you're going to do some review. Like, I came to destroy this. That was one of the prophetic times. Yeah. yeah. We, should we go and look? Uh, we probably should. Uh, let's see. I came to destroy. What does it say? Not he. He came to destroy the city. That, so some manuscripts actually, including the Vulgate, um, change the, the Vulgate's the Latin, change it to he, meaning the destroying angel. So that's a manuscript question. Uh, Ezekiel 9. Right. That's what I said, wasn't it? I did. Yeah, so here it is. Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge of the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, Solomon's temple, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Do we need to go back and restudy the whole thing? That way, doesn't it? 
But there it is. The glory of God, the God of Israel, it's the other long form, had gone up from the cherub which, where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called, he, the glory of God, called to the man clothed with linen side. And the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done with it. When we talked about that, we said that's the mark of baptism. It marks you as forgiven, clean, set apart, not doomed to destruction, just like the blood of the, of the Passover lamb was on the doorpost and the lintel of the homes, and the angel would pass over. And then go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not let them come near anyone who has the mark or on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began, and there it's the cleansing sanctuary and works its way out. So we need, we actually need the dead to be raised and brought back in, don't we? Yeah, we do. Right? Remember, that was pretty terrifying. <laughs> I don't remember when we read that before. So he's like, oh yeah, by the way, remember? Oh, yeah. So it was like that. Is that going to happen again? No, it's the opposite. The visions were like the vision I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. That's, that's part of that, but it, beginning in chapter 1. And prob- probably. Yeah, that's our, gospel, our Old Testament text today, too. Yeah. And the glory of, of the Lord came into the temple, which faces east. So now we have the glory of the Lord. We said is he, hmm, and then we have the spirit as well, all right? And you, of course, know that if you know the Son, the glory of the Lord, you know the Father, Jesus says. So the Father can be implicit. So can the Spirit, by the way. But here, the Spirit is noted specifically because he lifts him up and brings him into the teleporter. But we had that before. Remember, Ezekiel like, goes from one place to another place? Uh, I wrote this down too, probably. Uh, where does it, where he jumps? I didn't write down where he jumps. So maybe my Bible has a note here. That is in Ezekiel 3. Yes, where he jumps from one place to the other. He goes from the river Kabar all the way to Jerusalem in visions. But by the Spirit, it said. But here the Spirit's taking him from outside the walls back into the inner court. And there the glory of the Lord fills the temple, which for a priest is like the thing. Thank God for that. Finally, God is back with his people, not in fear of terror, but actually come to deliver them. Yeah. Oh, I did write it down. Chapter, verse 5. Different locality. Chapter 3. And then he did it again in chapter 8 and in chapter 11. But also in chapter 2, the Spirit lifts up Ezekiel, puts him on his feet, to preach, which is an important note that preachers, that the feet of the preachers are pretty significant in the Bible, <laughs> right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Why Jesus washes his disciples' feet, commissioning them to be his preachers, right? Yeah, so we have that too. All right, since he's in the inner court, he gets to, now we actually get to go back to the altar, but now with the glory of the Lord, not just in abstract numbers and dimensions and carvings and uh, construction types and geometries, but now, theologically, what's this for? And this is where we're going to get to why the altar is different. Um, but before we do that next time, we'll, we'll actually do some of the, no- the long notes that I gave you on the first sheet and the second sheet, um, which will get us back to talking about how does all of this confession from Ezekiel actually um, affect us as Christians today. So if you want to read in advance, and if you have questions, we can, uh, or maybe I'll just summarize it at the beginning of next class. Okay? Okay, we made it. That's the big payoff. Jesus is here. Done. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, 
slash support and give today.